daycare teacher, four as a household CEO, seven as a shrink, 14 hours as a chef, 15 hours as a housekeeper, seven hours doing laundry, 10 hours as a Mac or PC operator, that's funny, 11 hours as a facility manager, eight hours as a janitor, and eight hours as a taxi service. This year, research uh, indicates that the stay-at-home mom would earn a base salary of $37,000, but $78,000 in overtime for an annual salary of $115,000 and change. And I'll be honest, I've seen what stay-at-home moms do, $115,000 way underpaid. Moms that work outside the home earned a mom-based salary of $40,000 plus $23,000 in overtime, adding $63,000 and change on top of their day jobs. The general manager of salary.com wrote this, uh, we see mom as the compilation of 10 jobs in one person. The breadth of, mom, breadth of mom's responsibilities is beyond what most workers could ever experience day to day. Imagine if you had to attract and retain a candidate to feel, fill this role. Salary.com aimed for market price mom and the same manager it prices a job. So for 10 titles, a nearly 100 hour work week and a six figure annual rate, moms may be the most valuable workers in the country. Moms, you are awesome and you are way underpaid, I don't care what you make. <laughs> We're glad that you're here with us this morning. Happy Mother's Day, let's pray together and we'll get into God's word. God, we are grateful for your presence here with us, Holy Spirit, we're grateful for uh, the fact that you are in this room. Heavenly Father, you sent your son to this earth 2,000 years ago, but when he ascended into heaven, you did not leave us alone. You sent a comforter, a keeper, a helper, a friend in the form of your spirit to speak to our spirits. And so God, folks in this room, there's some that, that are kind of used to spiritual conversations, but maybe some that are new to that. May you kind of draw out of them today that longing for you. May they know today that as they hear from your word that it's really you, your spirit, speaking to them. Open our eyes now, open our ears, and open our hearts to what you have to say from your word. In the name of Christ, the people of God together said, Amen. If you don't know me, my name is Lucas. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, grateful to have you here with us this morning. And, and since it's Mother's Day, I decided uh, this week that we would begin kind of a three-week mini-series on a biblical woman. And that biblical woman's name is Esther. Uh, Esther was an absolutely fascinating person, and her entire story is recorded in the Old Testament in the book that bears her name. So over the next three weeks, what we're going to do is kind of pull three big ideas, three big truths from the book of Esther, one truth each week over the next three weeks that I hope will encourage you and inspire you and, and really teach us uh, what God has for us. And before we get to our big idea from the book of Esther this morning, we've got to do a little bit of history work to understand the context that this book enters into to kind of get a little handle on Esther's story. But Esther's story doesn't begin in Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Esther's story really begins about 100 years before Esther really even came on the scene. So we're going to do a little bit of history work this morning. You don't need to jot all this stuff down, but try to stick with me a little bit. And we're going to track through the 100 years before Esther came around. In 586 B.C., some of you know this, uh, many of you probably don't, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon uh, conquered the final two faithful tribes in the southern kingdom of Israel. And so uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon took that final faithful remnant of God's people 
captive and they were exiled out of the capital city of Jerusalem. But God, through Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel, his prophets, God promised that he would restore Israel to their land and to their capital city. And he fulfilled his promise, which God always does, by the way, and he fulfilled it in this particular case in a kind of a strange way. Because after the Jews had been captive to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon for about 47 years, the Persian Empire entered the picture and conquered Babylon. And history tells us that the Persian armies waded up the Euphrates River, and they waded through the canals of the capital city of Babylon, and the Persian Empire overtook the Babylonian Empire without even a battle. I think that's kind of cool. So Jewish captivity changed hands from the Babylonian Empire to the Persian Empire. Empire. And in an effort to kind of expand his influence in the Persian Empire, a, a man named Cyrus the Great, who was king at the time, issued a decree. And that decree allowed the Jews that he just kind of took hold of from the Babylonian Empire to return to their homeland and their capital city of Jerusalem to restore and rebuild the city using Persian money, thanks King Cyrus. So the prophets Ezra and Nehemiah led that movement back to restore the city of Jerusalem. So Two Persian kings later, after Cyrus the Great, and nearly 20 years after the Jews had returned to Jerusalem and began the city restoration project under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra, the second temple in Jerusalem was finally ready for consecration in 516 B.C. under a man named Darius I. That was Cyrus's grandson. Now, Darius had a different empire expansion strategy than his grandfather did. Darius just went to war and tried to kick people's rear ends all the time. And, and Darius, his strategy wasn't always effective. In fact, it was particularly ineffective at the Battle of Marathon in 490 B.C. For those of you who took Western Civ in university, you know about that battle. And the Greeks decisively defeated and even embarrassed Darius and the Persian armies. So let's go back to that capital city of Susa in, in the Bab previously Babylonian and now Persian Empire. Most Jews elected not to return with Jerusalem and Ezra uh, to the city of Jerusalem to restore the city because of the relative comfort that they experienced in captivity. So when King Darius died in 486 B.C., the one that was whipped at the Battle of Marathon in 490, when he died in 486, the Jewish people were still a very significant part of the culture in the capital city of Susa. The, the, the cultures of the Persian, uh, previously Babylonian, now Persian Empire were kind of mingled with Jewish culture. Yahweh worship, God worship had really been watered down by that time. And Jews and their Persian captors were nearly indistinguishable within the capital city of Susa. And we pick up our story three years after Darius I died. We pick up our story three years into his son's reign in that city of Susa, capital city of Susa, within the Persian Empire. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Esther chapter 1. Esther's in the Old Testament, so it's going to be towards the left. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the scripture, as always, is up here on the screen. You can use the Bible in the seat back in front of you. You can look on with your neighbor. You can use your iPhone, your iPad, your Blackberry, whatever it is you've got. would love for you to have the text in front of you. If you don't, again, that's okay. Scripture's up here on the screen. 
This is three years after Darius I has died and his son has taken over the throne, capital city of Susa, in the Persian Empire. So the text reads this way, Esther chapter 1, verse 1. It says, now in the days of Ahasuerus, uh, we'll talk about that in a minute, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. Now, who is this Ahasuerus guy? Well, his name in Hebrew is Ahasuerus. should be that, there you go. His name in Hebrew is Ashuerus. His Persian name is this, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce. I have no idea what that is. And his Greek name is actually Xerxes. So if you've read anything in Western Civ about King Xerxes, this is him. Same guy, just different names in different languages. And can, can, can I just ask you a favor this morning? Can we all agree to just call this guy by his Greek name? So, because if you mispronounce this, you say a naughty word in church, and then I'm not even going to try to say this one, and Xerxes is just easier, right? Let's just call him King Xerxes. So, King Xerxes is reigning, and it's his third year of his reign. Now, we need to tuck that information away really quickly, that it's the third year of King Xerxes' reign. We, we need to tuck it away for future reference, so I, I, I want to just play a little game here with me. Just stick with me. It's going to be kind of silly, and you're going to get over it. Okay, it's going to be great. My daughter, Kaya, watches Bubble Guppies, and uh, have, has anybody ever watched the Bubble Guppies? Yeah, okay, so they have this song on Bubble Guppies that goes like this. What time is it? It's time for lunch. What time is it? It's time for lunch, which is a great song, by the way. So here's what we're going to do. What year was it? It was year three. What year was it? It was year three. Okay, you're going to sing that with me right now, and then we're, and then. You know, it's gonna be. It's, this is gonna be fun. It's, it's Mother's Day. Come on, impress your mom. Ready? What year was it? Oh, seriously. What year was it? All right, fantastic. Now that we've got that in mind, let's keep reading. It says, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast. Give me, uh, give me the text. He gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While, look what Xerxes is doing. He showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his greatness. My, we think a lot of ourselves, don't we? <laughs> for many days, 180 days. Essentially, King Xerxes throws a party. We'll we'll learn here in a moment that he's got a political motive for his party, but his overall goal is to show the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his pomp and greatness. And did you catch how long the party lasts? 180 days, six months, he throws a party for all his military leaders and governors in the capital city of Susa. And then when that's not enough for the last seven days, Xerxes extends that invitation beyond just military leaders and governors to the entire capital city. And they just go berserks like Mardi Gras for three days. They just party their brains out for, for, for seven days, 180 days total with his military leaders and, and, and governors, and then seven days a week total with the entire entire capital city. But at the end of that week of partying, things begin to go awry. Look at verse 10. It says, on the seventh day, this is at the end of the week, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded his servants, his servants are actually named in the text, but it's his servants, to bring Queen Vashti, this is his wife, before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. What's he doing? He's continuing his self-promotion, isn't he? 
He's continued to show the riches of his glory and the splendor, the pomp of his greatness. And this time now, he's using his wife. There's two critical details I want you to see here. First, the heart of the king was merry with wine. I love how the Bible says stuff sometimes, don't you? This, this means that this guy was three sheets to the wind. He was absolutely drunk as a skunk. That's what that means in modern language. He, he, he was merry with wine. The second thing I want you to notice is that he requests that his wife, Queen Vashti, parade herself around in front of, her, uh, in front of his drunk friends wearing her royal crown. But the original language here has a little bit of an implication to it that's probably critical. The implication is this. She's wearing only her royal crown. This man has decreased his wife to an object of drunken desire. He's an abusive, tyrannical, self-aggrandizing fool. And Vashti is like many of the women in the room right now. If somebody, if, you know, your husband says, parade yourself around in front of my drunken friends wearing only your heels, you would go, uh, no. Not here, not now, not ever. That's not happening. And that's what Vashti does. But the king gets angry. The Bible says that his anger actually burned within him. So King Xerxes calls his advisors together to ask for advice. And this, uh, his advisors actually convince the king that Vashti's refusal to become an object of drunken desire will empower every woman in the kingdom to think for themselves. And what happens when women think for themselves? They keep us out of trouble. But, it, but Xerxes, Xerxes didn't think that. Xerxes said, look, we're going to issue an edict that says that every woman's got to submit to their husband. And Vashti, he divorces her on the spot. He sends her out of the room and he says, I never want to see you again. And as far as we can tell, he never does. Xerxes is drunk, angry, and insecure. And he agrees with his uh, advisor's asinine conclusion and divorces his wife on the spot. This is not a good decision on the part of King Xerxes. Now, I want to give you a dollar's worth of free advice here. This is not our bottom line truth for this morning, so don't panic. This is not why you came to church today, but don't make decisions when you're drunk, angry, or insecure. Okay, we're just going to learn this from King Xerxes today. Don't make decisions when you're drunk, angry, or insecure. In fact, don't do this part at all, okay? But don't make decisions when you're drunk, angry, or insecure. King Xerxes is drunk, angry, and insecure. And I know it sounds stupid. It made it sound like it should be common sense that we don't make decisions when we're drunk, angry, or insecure. But that's the funny thing about common sense. It's not all that common, is it? So don't let intoxication of any kind. This is not just about wine for Xerxes. Xerxes is drunk on wine, anger, and himself. He's intoxicated on booze, power, and insecurity, and that rarely makes for good decisions. So learn from Xerxes' mistakes. If anything, if any of these things are true of you and you have a decision to make, sober up, calm down, and ground yourself in the identity that God has given you before you pull the trigger. Okay, that was a dollar's worth of free advice. Vashti's, Vashti is gone. Uh, Xerxes has divorced her and sent her out. Likely they never saw each other again. Let's pick it up in chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1 begins this way. He says, after these things, the author of Scripture says, after these things. And a lot of times we, we kind of skip over this stuff, but think about this. After what things? What, what things is the Bible talking about here? 
Well, Esther chapter 2, verse 16, tells us that we are now, at the beginning of chapter 2, in the seventh year of King Xerxes' reign. Aha, now our song makes sense, doesn't it? When we started in Esther chapter 1, what year was it? Was your 3. What year was it? And what year is it now? Seven. There's been four years that passed between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what happened between Xerxes' year 3 and Xerxes' year 7, but the good thing for us is that history actually does tell us what happened during those four years. King Xerxes, right after he divorced Vashti, invaded Greece. Remember his father, Darius, had been shamefully defeated at Marathon in 490 B.C.? And he was actually planning a second invasion in 486. The Greek historian Herodotus tells us and, and speculates that Xerxes' six-month party for all his military leaders and all his governors of all the provinces was an effort to demonstrate that he had the resources to conquer Greece and avenge his father's death. Herodotus uh, quotes King Xerxes as saying this, uh, My intent is to throw a bridge over the Hellespont. That's the Dardanelles, modern-day Dardanelles right there by the Aegean Sea. To throw a bridge over the Hellespont and march an army through Europe against Greece, that thereby I may obtain vengeance from the Athenians for the wrongs committed against the Persians and against my father. Check it out. Is Xerxes not making another decision in anger? He's trying to avenge his father's death. This is not a political move. It's not a military strategy. He's not defending everybody. He's just ticked. And he makes another decision in anger. And this one doesn't go very well either. The Persian army, if you know your history, was victorious at the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 B.C. But history tells us that the Greeks lured Xerxes' Persian navy into the Straits of Salamis and whipped his rear end. Xerxes literally sat on a throne and watched his entire navy get annihilated in a moment. And watch this now. After these things, after those things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus or Xerxes had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. What's happening here? Xerxes has returned to the capital city of Susa, battle-weary, embarrassed, and a failure. And now check it out. He ain't got nobody to talk to about it. He's lonely now. His anger has subsided and regret sets in. You see, don't make decisions when you're drunk, angry, or insecure. But Xerxes didn't learn his lesson. See, for him, women are still objects. He's still the center of the universe, and he still takes really bad advice from really bad advisors who counsel Xerxes. Now watch this. They counsel him to hold a beauty pageant to select the next queen. I'm not kidding. I know that sounds absurd, but that's what they tell him to do. And he's a moron, so he takes their advice. And though Xerxes certainly experienced the illusion of control, like he could control something, that's just an illusion. You know why? Because Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And this situation is no different. God turned the heart of King Xerxes to a young Jewish girl named Esther. Esther. Now, for those of you who know the story, you know what happened. For those of you who don't know the story, I'm about to tell you, so spoiler alert, okay? 
Xerxes takes Esther as his wife because she wins the beauty pageant. He crowns her queen, and she subsequently risks her life and leverages her position as queen in order to save God's people from a wicked, genocidal plot. And we're going to explore Esther's story in detail over the next two weeks. But Esther's story, get this, does not begin in a Persian throne room. It doesn't begin with an opportunity to save God's people. Esther's story began long before that moment with an adoptive dad who loved her very, very well. Look at Esther chapter 2, verse 5. It says, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah. So what the author is telling us here is that Mordecai was part of this group, but he likely wasn't part of this group. He's talking about Mordecai's ancestors. He was part of a family that had been carried away by Babylonian captivity, whom Nebuchadnezzar, remember, king of Babylon, had carried away. That's 586 B.C. Keep reading. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure. Again, I love how the Bible says that. The Bible says stuff. Uh, the king's heart was merry with wine. That means he was drunk as a skunk. The woman had a beautiful figure. It means she was smoking hot as a pistol. That's what that means. I'm not kidding. And she was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, check it out, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Today, our journey through the book of Esther stops here with Mordecai. What do we know about Mordecai? We know that he was a faithful Jew living in exile from his homeland. Because he was a member of a captive race of people, we can safely assume that he was under-resourced, likely poor. Uh, we know that orphans were not typically well cared for in the 5th century B.C., so Mordecai resisted common practice and took Esther in as his own daughter. Uh, the book of Esther will go on to tell us that Esther spent a year in the king's palace being primped and prepared, a year in hair and makeup, not kidding, and cosmetics and whatever else, preparing for that beauty pageant. And every day she was in the king's palace, Mordecai went to check on her. Every day for a year. Uh, we know that Esther would later risk her life for the sake of God's people because of, because of Mordecai's encouragement that there is far more to life than just surviving. There's thriving and contributing and being courageous. And that stuff is far more important than just surviving. And that was Mordecai's encouragement. We know that when Esther was faced with the decision of whether or not to risk her life, Mordecai encouraged her to spend three days fasting and praying and waiting rather than making drunk, angry, impetuous choices like Xerxes did. We know that Esther, like we, the Bible just told us, was extremely physically attractive, but demonstrated modesty, simplicity of heart, and simplicity of lifestyle. So when she was offered anything that she wanted before going before the king, Esther chose to go in empty-handed. No extra ornamentation required for Esther. And certainly, one learns that kind of poise 
modesty and security from one's parents. Or in Esther's case, she learned it from her adoptive father, Mordecai. Though the book of Esther is named after Esther, and though Esther went down in history, and though Esther stepped forward in an act of courage, and though God used Esther to save his people from annihilation, and though Esther is certainly a hero, let us not miss the story's second equally heroic act. A simple man who cared for a little girl was, who was orphaned when her parents died. In a world and culture where children were undervalued, in a situation that would have meant immense sacrifice for Mordecai, as an exile who struggled to remain faithful to Yahweh, when the rest of the nation of Israel had adopted their captors' culture and faith and polytheism, Mordecai poured heart and soul and character and poise and gratitude and faithfulness and courage and grace into a little girl that would grow up to make a difference in the world and a difference in the entire trajectory of human history. So here's our bottom line truth for today, learning from Mordecai. You ready? Here's, here's our one truth, one big idea that we're taking just this week from the book of Esther. One person can make a difference in the world by making a world of difference for one person. One person, in this case Mordecai, can make a difference in the world by making a world of difference for one person. But we are gonna personalize it today. That's why it's up here on the screen this way. So say this with me because I want us to own this together this morning. We're gonna talk about it a little bit. Say it with me. I can make a difference in the world by making a world of difference for one person. Okay, we've got it now. We've got it. Let's own it together. Let's own it. Ready? I can make a difference in the world by making a world of difference for one person. Many of us would be thrilled to make a difference in the world like Esther did from the throne room. But what about Mordecai? How many of us are willing to be faithful to what God has called us to, even if it doesn't mean position and authority and recognition and accolades and applause? Mordecai was willing, and he made a difference in the world simply by making a world of difference for just one person. This is what Mordecai's story teaches us, that each of us can make a difference in the world simply by making a world of difference in one person's life. So let's apply it, then we'll finish it up. Parents, moms especially, because it's Mother's Day, but dads too. Your greatest contribution to the world and to the kingdom of God may not be what you do, but who you raise. I'm going to say it one more time. Moms especially, but dads too, let this sink in. Your greatest contribution to the world and to the kingdom of God may not be what you do, but who you raise. So learning from Mordecai here, I ask you, are you making a world of difference in your children's lives? Are you teaching them to be brave like Mordecai taught Esther, or are you teaching them to be afraid? Do you remind them that there's more to life than just surviving? Are you teaching them poise and security and courage and patience? Are you making a world of difference for your kids? Teachers, you may never write the textbook that will change pedagogy forever, but you may instill hope and value and bravery in one student, just one, that grows up to cure cancer. Make a world of difference in them, 
and they may make a difference in the world because of you. Sunday school teachers who are caring for my daughter and listening right now, there will never be a book of the Bible named after you. As much as we want to try, you're not going to get it. I'm looking into the camera so they can see me looking at them. But like Mordecai did for Esther, you are teaching our children right now about a God who loves them unconditionally. And those kids are going to grow up to be difference makers in their sphere of influence because of what you're doing right now, making a world of difference in their life. Single parents. I suspect that you may occasionally feel like Mordecai, like a footnote in a book that people don't pay much attention to. But you are demonstrating a quality of courage and fortitude just like Mordecai did that very few of us can even dream about. So keep it up. You're making a difference in the world by making a world of difference for your child or children. Marketplace leaders, physicians, entrepreneurs, you may never get to the top of your field, but you will have the opportunity, absolutely without question, to make a world of difference for one person. And that one person may go on to make a difference in the world because of the world of difference you made for them. And it really doesn't take much. It just simply takes doing what Mordecai did and being faithful to the things that God places right in front of your face. He didn't go seek Esther out. There's just this little girl, and her parents are dead. She needs a dad. I can do that. And he stepped right into it, simply faithful to what God called him to do. The middle of the, um, of the 20th century, the 1950s and 1960s, uh, were a tumultuous time in my home country of the United States, uh, especially across the South, because people with my skin color uh, looked down on people with my daughter's skin color. Blacks and whites in the U.S. at that time didn't use the same washrooms or eat in the same restaurants or drink from the same water fountain or sit on the same section of buses. African Americans were beaten, imprisoned, and even killed for having the audacity to claim that they were actual people with value and souls. In school growing up, we talked about courageous individuals like Martin Luther King Jr. We learned about them uh, in the U.S. in school that that were exalted to positions of authority or influence, and they stood against injustice, just like Esther did about 25 years before. And I'm glad we learned about people like that. But while those courageous individuals made a difference in the world, there were others who were making a world of difference in the lives of individuals by resisting that same crooked and wicked system. For example, there's a little town in uh, eastern New Mexico called Eunice. Uh, my high school was three times the size of Eunice, the entire town. Eunice had a city pool, and even after the Supreme Court mandated integration of all public places, the city pool in Eunice remained whites only, just like many other public places did. In 1963, four or five black families decided to step over that unspoken and long-standing boundary. A courageous pool manager who knew the children were coming made it known that day that they would be allowed to swim. So a few brave black kids paid their quarter and walked into the city pool. And when they did, every single white child that was in the pool that day got out. Afraid to swim in the same water as a black kid and no doubt having been instructed by their parents to maintain a silent racist code of conduct. But there was one little girl, one 10-year-old little white girl 
standing on the side of the pool that knew something wasn't right. These people are children too, she thought. These children are people too. And what's so wrong about swimming in the same water with them? So that brave little girl took a personal stance. It wasn't an act of social justice. It wasn't an effort to make a difference in the world. It was simply an act of faithfulness to what she felt God was doing at the time. And she got in the pool. (laughs) The audacity to swim with black kids. I tell you that story for two reasons today. First reason I tell you that story is that little girl may not have made a difference in the world that day, but she most certainly made a world of difference for those several black children, didn't she? When she decided to break ranks and step into the water, she communicated with her actions that they were people made in the image of God, valuable and loved and worth taking a risk for. She risked her reputation. She risked friendship, which is really hard for a 10-year-old girl, just so that a few kids might feel valued. And for them, she made a world of difference that day. That 10-year-old girl's name uh, was Sandy Langston. Now, you may not know her name because she gets Mordecai-level recognition. Sometimes she feels like a bit of a footnote. She doesn't get Esther-level recognition with a whole book named after her. But I certainly know her name, and I'll use it this afternoon when I call to wish her a happy Mother's Day. And just like Mordecai taught Esther, my mom taught my brother and my sister and me to be courageous, to stand up for what's right, not to make drunken, angry choices. In fact, she taught us not to get drunk at all, Mom. She taught us simplicity of heart and faithfulness, and above all, she taught us how to love God first. She won't ever be queen like Esther, but she was faithful like Mordecai and made a difference in the world that day by making a world of difference for those few young kids at a city pool. And I've watched her now for 37 years make a difference in the world by making a world of difference one person at a time just by being faithful to what God has called her to do. And even when I called her yesterday to make sure the details of that story were accurate, she was quick to remind me that the heroes that day were those four or five little black kids that got into the pool, not her. She's humble too, just like Mordecai. So here's my question for you to close. Where are you making a world of difference? Where are you making a world of difference? And more specifically, for whom? For whom? Where are you making a world of difference and for whom? It's always a bit challenging just by way of confession here when people come into my office or they come up to me on a Sunday morning and they identify this thing that's this injustice in the world or there's people with, you know, addictions and there's divorce and different things. And what they suggest to me is the church ought to do something about that. What that typically means is that I or others in vocational church work should start a program and book a room and design a logo and a little trifold brochure in order to make a difference in the world. And typically my response to that suggestion is this. We do have a program for making a difference in the world. You're our program. Our program is you. The church is you. The church isn't offices or buildings or this room. The church is people individuals who are making a difference in the world by making a world of difference just one person at a time. So my question this morning is, who is God calling you to make a difference for this week? And and check it, this should not require a lot of thought. Like you don't have to go through your Rolodex and go through your phone and all this stuff. 
what does God put in front of you right now? It didn't require a lot of thought for Mordecai. Like, there was a little girl who needed a dad. He stepped in. He was her dad. That's all he did. So who is God calling you to make a world of difference for this week, right now? Is there an awkward kid at school that needs a friend? You be that friend. Is, is there a coworker that's hurting that needs a listening ear? Don't tell your coworker to make an appointment with a pastor. You be the listening ear. You make a world of difference in their life by listening to them and praying for them. Is there a single mom in your life that needs a hand this week? Is there a missionary that needs an encouraging email? Is there a senior in, in, a, in a, a, a residence facility that needs you to visit them and come alongside them? That's you. You do that. You do that. You make a world of difference in that one person's life by that one little act of faithfulness, and it changes the world each and every day. Perhaps you and I can learn from Mordecai today that the difference we make in the world will be the world of difference that we make for just one person that needs the grace of God. Pray with me. As the worship team and choir kind of come back up to lead us in a song of celebration, I would invite you now just, even with head bowed and eyes closed, if you're comfortable doing that, to kind of block out distractions. And, and is there a face, is there a name that comes to mind, that comes to your heart, maybe that the Spirit of God is even bringing to mind that needs you to make a world of difference for them this week? Is it a spouse? Is it a kid? Is it a friend? Is it a coworker? Is it a teammate? Is it a client? Who needs you this week to make a world of difference in their life? God, teach us to be difference makers in our world, not necessarily from a position of authority and influence like Esther had, although, again, we'll look into her story and learn from her in the coming weeks. God, teach us to make a difference in the world by making a world of difference one person at a time, like Mordecai did, faithful to what you call us to in front of us, right in front of us, right here, right now. And God, just as Esther, before she made a courageous decision to step before the king and risk her life, she fasted and prayed and waited. So God, together now, even as we close, we declare that truth together that strength will rise as we wait on you. God, empower and restore and renew and rejuvenate and refresh us as we wait on you and give us strength today to make a world of difference just one person at a time. In Christ's name, the people of God together said, amen. Let's stand together and sing in response.